Um, well, we have a lot of really neat things in our service that point to the birth of Jesus, so I don't feel that we need to go into a long intro, um, and we're going to jump right into our text. So if you have a Bible, please open up to Matthew chapter 2. There are Bibles in some of the seats in front of you. I'm going to be breaking this message into two parts. The first part, I want to focus on Matthew's history of the birth story of Jesus. Because even if you've heard it a million times, the fact that God became a baby and was born of a virgin in such humble estate, and he did it for you, knowing that he was going to suffer in order that he might ransom you and bring you to the Father, is the greatest story ever told. And it bears being told every single year. And there is something just so cool about it that no matter how many times you look at it, no matter how many years I've been doing Advent series, Christmas sermons, you never find a different, uh, you never find an, uh, any lack of different angles that you can look at this story with. So familiarity ought to never breed contempt or lazy preaching. The second part is right in line with our teaching about Matthew's style of writing. We're going to be looking under the surface of the text and looking at the treasures of the heart of those who are written into the birth narrative of Jesus, specifically Herod and the wise men. Um, but let me get back to the kiddos that were up here for one moment. We had them share about the treasures of their hearts because they're kids. We knew that we were going to get an honest answer to the question. We know that if those children cherish above all else a stuffed animal, a um, pet rat, um, a, um, a ukulele, um, whatever it is, they're going to share. They don't feel the need to put on a dog and pony show for you. They are going to share what they are actually feeling and let that be an encouragement to us. Adults who have played the long game for long enough are going to say that it's Jesus, even if it's not the truth. We see that in verse 8 of our passage when Herod's like, hey, tell me when you find the Messiah so that I can come and worship him because he's, he's totally the treasure of my heart. I'm not kidding you guys. No shady lie that I'm telling you. Um, but what he says and the actuality of his heart are two very, very different things that he knows how to play the game. Um, also, our jobs as parents, our jobs as teachers within Redeemer Kids is to disciple these kiddos so that they might see what it means to treasure Jesus. And passages like this make sure that what we say we treasure and what we actually treasure are sending the same message. So um, we're going to pray. I'm going to dig into our text. Frank Savannah, you love Christmas more than anybody I know, so would you stand where you're at and pray for the time in the Word, and we'll dig in.
Amen. Thank you, Craig. All right, so the first six verses of the birth of Jesus, um, we're going to be seeing as we look at Matthew that the birth of Jesus is becoming a known thing. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the king, days of Herod the king, behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when he rose and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired from them where the Christ ought to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so is written by the prophet, and you of Bethlehem in the land of Judah are no means least amongst the people or the rulers of Judah. From you a scepter shall come. And I'm recognizing that from a different verse. From you a ruler shall come who will shepherd the people. Israel. So as I was reading through the different gospel accounts in preparation for this week's message, I was struck by the fact that Luke's gospel, which is the other gospel that pays the most attention to the birth narrative of Jesus, presents Jesus in a very different, not in any way contradictory, but a different way. It presents the birth of Jesus as the birth of a savior coming into the world. Luke 1, 31 through 32 presents Jesus as God's son. Luke 1, 35 presents his birth as being divine. Luke 1, 43, Elizabeth's greeting to Mary, she actually ascribes the term, my Lord, to the baby in Mary's womb in the text that John preached on last week. Also in the text that John preached at last week, in the Magnificat in 147, Mary begins by rejoicing in God, her Savior. Perhaps the most famous Christmas verse in Luke 2.11 says, unto you a what? A Savior has been born, Christ the Lord. And then we see the themes of saving power of this child that as he was born and presented in the temple to Simeon and Anna. And they make these great messianic eschatological claims as they hold up this baby Jesus. And even in the lineage, Luke narrows down his family tree to funnel it down to present this child as the son of Adam, the son of God, in Luke 3.38, pointing to Jesus being the second Adam who would come and crush the head of the serpent that we read about back in Genesis 3.15 in our previous series. So Matthew, he takes a little bit of a different approach than what Luke takes. Matthew focuses on the true kingship of this child who is to be born, a theme that Matthew remains on throughout his entire gospel. Matthew, Matthew is, if one thing he is, he is very consistent of a writer in the way that he writes, the points that he makes, they continue to circle back on each other, and this is one that he is consistent about throughout his entire gospel. He focuses on the true kingship of this child to be born, and he even frames the words very intentionally. He, he uses irony to draw out certain things about Christ's character that we could even surmise from the birth narrative. Like in our chapter today, we have Herod, who was not born in the right place. He was not born of the proper decent, the proper lineage or descent. But nevertheless, he lives lavishly in a king's palace that he did not belong in. Then we have Jesus, 
who is set up against this Herod, who is born where the rightful king was to be born. We have his lineage and his descent doubly confirmed, being of Judah, of the family of David, by the lineage of his father Joseph, being born of the virgin by the Holy Spirit, making his lineage divine through the virgin birth. But nevertheless, he is born in poverty, not in a palace that should belong to him, but in a manger. And this is intentional. What Matthew is doing is, as the great storyteller that Matthew is, he's setting up four different things that he wants you guys to be able to follow as kind of like little hooks that he uses in telling his story. He's establishing from the onset that this child is the true awaited king, a theme that I said he keeps throughout the gospel, the kingship of Jesus and the kingdom of Jesus are things that Matthew will continue to come back to over and over and over. He is setting up Jesus as the anti-Herod or the anti-kingdom. And this theme of the kingdom of Jesus running as contrary at the same time as the kingdom of this world is something that he continues over and over. You heard a lot about that in the Sermon on the Mount. He's borrowing heavily from the Exodus story to draw parallels between Moses and the new Moses and Jesus. Um, and he draws parallels between Pharaoh and this new Pharaoh type named Herod and something that Matthew does throughout his gospel, and he's showing that the religious leaders of the Jews have missed it, but these pagan Gentiles were receiving what they had rejected through their apathy and hypocrisy, another theme that we see throughout Matthew's entire gospel. And there are kernels of that that grow into a mighty oak that are found right here in chapter 2. So Matthew is doing all of this while exposing the participants' hearts who are involved in this story. And it's masterful, the way that he does it. It really is. He sets the history and culture and religious climate that Jesus was born into with the skill of a great historian. But then right underneath the whole story, he plunges into people's hearts and begins to do heart surgery that we're going to get into in a minute with the skillful hand of a shepherd and a tactician. So let's look at Jesus, at Matthew painting Jesus as the true king for a moment. The wise men refer to Jesus as the king in verses 1 and 2. They go to Herod and they say Jesus is a king. And if you notice something, it actually repeats in verse 3, Herod the king. But what would you expect if somebody came into a land, went and saw the king, and said, Hey, king, we're here to see the king. You would, see some, you would expect somebody to dispute that unless they knew that they were not the rightful king. So the fact that Herod doesn't dispute this is one of Matthew's points of him being the rightful king. In verses 4 and 5, Herod summons Bible scholars of the day to find out where the Messiah was going to be born. And sure enough, in verse 6, they quote the great prophecy from Micah 5.2, saying that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And Bethlehem, aside from being a fulfillment of a prophecy from the book of 
uh, Micah is more than that. It was the city of kings. It was the city that David was born in. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, there was a covenant given to the family of David, saying that there would always be one from you that would rule on the throne, and he shall reign. What do they say in Handel's Messiah? Forever and ever. That's what it's saying with this verse, that this is that guy that's going to be reigning forever than ever. And through the bouncing and forth of these terms of king and Messiah being used interchangeably in the first six verses of Matthew chapter 2, Herod is actually coming to an understanding of something that's actually pretty deep. Herod doesn't get much credit, nor does he deserve much. I mean, there's just some people where you're not looking for the silver lining for them in history. Um, but he does get that the Messiah and king are one and the same. The, the, this Messiah was going to be the rightful king. That's why when they say, where is the king going to be born? He immediately asks, where is the Messiah going to be born? He puts two and two together. Some other evidence that it's the true king. The wise men prostrate themselves before him, showing that they at least see him as king. We don't want to overread that and, and see it as a, a declaration of deity. It was a common cultural thing in that day to bow down before a king and to show homage. But I think it goes a little bit deeper than that because in verse 11 it actually says that they bowed down and that adds another word to show that there was worship in their bowing. They bring go gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which are gifts that are fitting of a king. And again, they prostrate themselves in verse 12 as they give themselves these gifts, showing that it might be something more than just his kingship that it's about. And even the lineage of Jesus in chapter 1 starts with, this is Jesus, the son of David, showing that Matthew wants you to know right from the onset, there is a king. His name's not Caesar. His, king, his name is Jesus. And this is the story of Jesus, the king. So, um, Matthew's also establishing Jesus as the anti-Herod. Herod was a half Idumean. If you remember, um, Idumeans, they descended from Esau. Esau, um, not good with Jacob, if you remember that story. In Genesis, um, they settled in the land of Edom, and he was the only um, a king because he was a political appointee by the Roman government. He was opposed to Jesus, who was of the Davidic line born in Bethlehem. Jesus did not seek power through political or shady alliances or jockeying with people in power. In fact, he spoke out against that sort of religious power that was becoming known in that day. Herod fights in wicked and underhanded ways. To maintain power where Jesus gave the whole Sermon on the Mount saying that those who were victimized by wicked and underhanded people are going to be the flourishing and blessed ones in his kingdom. Herod was trying to stop a plan of God with might and rage and God attempted to foil his plan with a baby. That one just blows my mind. All of the armies of Herod could not defeat the baby of God. Herod drove the family of promise into Egypt, much like the Pharaoh chose, drove the chosen people out of Egypt. Herod gathers the scribes in secret and then talks to wise men before they leave and talks to them in secret where Jesus was born out in the middle of a field with a giant light hanging 
over him like a tractor beam for all to see. The Magi, they don't come in in secret. I mean, they come in like, make way for Prince Sali. Like, this is a show when they show up. Yet here's Herod, who's like, yo, come over here. I want to talk to you about Jesus. And he's doing everything on the down low. And a quick tangent, but people that don't have anything to hide don't need to have shady side conversations. So one of the things I find most fascinating about Matthew's framing of the birth of uh, the narrative is this anti-Herod is that it's a pattern that Matthew actually uses throughout the rest of his gospel. It's sort of like this, this hipster approach that he's writing. The temptation of Jesus, Jesus is presented as the anti-powers of this world. The Sermon on the Mount Jesus sets up his kingdom as the anti-kingdom of this world. Jesus uses the woes to the Pharisees to set up the faith in his name as opposed to the anti-religion of this world. And Jesus uses the cross to ultimately make foolish all of the wisdom of this world, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And a quick pastoral note, in any of those stories that I mentioned, If you looked at them only at ground level while they were occurring, Jesus would have looked like he was the one that was losing in all four of those stories. But then when you're able to step up and see the aerial view, you see the awesome plan of God. And I just want to encourage, because I'm sure, as I was praying through this sermon, I was like, there's somebody here that needs to hear this. Step back. Don't look at the man on the street's view that makes it look like you're losing, when you know that you have a long history of following Jesus, where the 30,000-foot view will show you that Jesus is always the victor, and he will always continue to be. So Matthew does something really neat here. He begins to set up Jesus as not just the anti-Herod, but he also sets up the Magi as the antithesis of Herod. There's always been so much debate surrounding who are these guys. I'm going to go quickly through this because I do want to get to a couple of finer points in the text. But were they some people that were in authority or were they astronomers because of their attention to the stars or were they scientists or were they pagan philosophers or theologians being that they were described as people from the east and they had seeming familiarity with messianic prophecy. Um, were they just foreign dignities who came for the birth of a king's son? Because that was very regular in those days as a practice. Were there more than just three of them? The best answer to all of those questions is just yes. Um, without us having to do a full case study on the Magi, there was not a fine line in scholasticism in that day. I mean, even if you read what we know as the scholastic period of Christian history, there was not a fine line of delineation between all of the things that we separate into their categories. It would have been very natural for somebody in their day to be using something like, pursuing something like science, and then to include things like astronomy, astrology, philosophy, and religion, and say that that was all being done in the name of science. It would be incredibly common for dignitaries to receive this type of education. It's completely plausible based on their knowledge and the gifts that they brought and the fact that they were willing to go to Herod's place without worrying about getting jacked along the way 
that they were probably men of prominence. They were probably traveling with a posse that was more than three. Just because there's three gifts that are listed do not mean that there were only three people. Um, we just know that the Holy Spirit saw fit to name these three gifts. The text doesn't give a ton of background other than that. So that was my quickest treatment of the Magi that I could give. But what's most important about these Magi was these people followed a star to the land where God, the presence of God, resided. And this is supposed to stand out immediately to the Israelites. Because one else did they follow a pillar of light to rest above the area where the presence of God resided. That one blew my mind this week as I was reflecting upon them in the wilderness going across these desert areas, reflecting on the pillar of fire that stood over the tabernacle and represented the presence of God. These Gentile wise men from the east followed a pillar of fire to above where the presence of God was resting, and this was not an accidental point that was made by Matthew. Like I said, Exodus language is all over this passage. So from following a pillar of light by night to the place where the presence of God would be to the miraculous saving and delivering of this child from a psychopathic killer who is willing to kill all of the infants because he risked losing his power. This has Exodus painted straight across it. And there's also this prophecy that some people connect this to from Numbers 24:17. I think I have that up there for your consumption. It says, I see him, but not now. I'll behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Mohed, Moab, and it shall break down all of the sons of Sheth. Um, multiple commentators believe that this is pointing to this, this star. This one's certainly fascinating because it talks about crushing the head of Moab. Where was Herod from? I just said it to you 20 minutes ago. It's right there. Moab. And all right. And I do believe that crushing the head shows up somewhere in messianic language along the way as well. I, I don't want to get too lost on theories of what the star was or, or how I missed it um, or in how they moved and all that stuff. But I know for sure that just like the Israelites leaving Egypt, there was a light in the sky that guided them to the dwelling place of God. The fact that a Gentile ruler followed while the Jewish leaders do not is supposed to be read as an indictment against the hearts of the place of the nation of Israel at the time. Again, Matthew is a great storyteller. He knows that they would have known the book of Exodus. So he's showing them how far the hearts of the nation had fallen. They're no longer willing to follow the presence of God the way that their forefathers had followed. Um, well, I wanted to explain all of that, but really I want to use the remaining time to get to the heart. I'm truly excited to explain that even as an infant, baby Jesus was exposing the true hearts, the true treasure of men's hearts. The people in this story, and this is what I want to bring home to you guys, this is what I want you guys to hear from me, take home, consider throughout the week as you leave this place. The people in this story are physical manifestations of a spiritual reality that every single one of us faces. When we treasure Jesus, we hold on to this thing, the things of this world loosely, 
And we will see any treasure that we have been given as an opportunity to honor the king. But when we hold the treasures of this life tightly, we can even find ourselves fighting against God, the greatest of all treasures, in order to hang on to a treasure that we never really needed to begin with. You know what song was going through my head all week as I was thinking through this? The Rich Mullins song where he says, I'd rather, for, I'd rather fight you for something I don't even want than to take what you give and I need. And in this passage, the true treasure of hearts are actually put on display for all to see. So we're going to see the responses, and it gives a huge indication of the true identity of their treasure. Look at it like this. Fruit, brothers and sisters, is like a treasure map. Our fruit and actions are a primary indicator of what we truly treasure. We can say that our fruit is in Christ alone. My hope is found. He is my light, my strength, and my song. But if your fruit is malice, anger, gossip, judgmental spirit, or bitterness, then the fruit says that something other than Christ has shifted to being the center of the allegiances of your heart, even though you might still be convinced and answer that Jesus is foremost as the center of your allegiances. Look, all of the people in this passage said that Jesus was the treasure in their hearts, including Herod in verse 8. Think about that. Wrap your minds around that for a second. Even Herod said, tell me where the baby is. I want to come treasure him along with you guys, but the fruit shows that it's simply not true of most of the people in this passage, contrary to what they would have said their treasure was, and it's no different for you and me. The Sermon on the Mount taught us that fruit is a treasure map leading to the location of the true treasure of your hearts. So two of the biggest indicators of what you truly treasure in your heart are what is your heart truly fixated on through most of the day, and what is the outward fruit when that thing that our hearts are fixed on, fixated on is either achieved or the opposite, we're unable to reach it, and it's unable to be achieved. Tim Keller once said in a famous series of lectures on Martin Luther, he said, if you want to see what somebody truly treasures in their heart, block someone's access to that thing, and you will see the reaction of what they truly treasure. Let me read that again. If you want to see what somebody truly treasures in their heart, block somebody's access to that thing, and you will see their reaction, by their reaction what they truly treasure. I have probably used that lecture more than any other resource in the counseling that I have done as a pastor because it cuts right past the garbage and gets right to the hearts of the person that you're talking to. Someone wants to talk about how they don't have time to serve because their life is so full, and you begin to write down... How many of those things that your life is full with are more important than being obedient to the call of Christian service? Um, you start to see the start to come out. Or you could see the opposite. And you see repentance start to come out. And you say, wow, there's a lot of things on this list that don't belong as high on this list as I have it. When somebody says that they're just unable to give, ask them to write down where their money is going. And if they show you that Jesus is their treasure... Um, all right, but if there's question there, if you're saying you're saying Jesus is your treasure, but as we follow the pennies, we're saying that something else is really your treasure. Well, then somebody has the choice. Do I lose my grip on that, or do I start to be like Gollum 
and be like, no, this is my precious. You're not going to take this. And you see what their treasure really is. Heck, I've even seen it with ministry. Somebody's fruit is just frustration and bitterness and anger, and you suggest that they take a step back from ministry and they respond with vehemence, frustration, and just full-on vitriolic meanness, then you wonder, what was it that you were really treasuring where ministry needed to mean that much to you that it evoked that kind of response from your heart? So let's look at how fruit exposes the treasure of the wise men. First off, they don't come in secretly sniveling like Herod did. They just enter Jerusalem like a boss because people who aren't shady don't do stuff in secret. Second, they don't secretly try to find out where the king was born like Herod the coward. They walk right into the king's court and they say, tell us where we can find this king so we can worship them. Because again, shady people don't have shady hearts, so they don't have shady fruit. They don't send someone else to go and find the Messiah because they wanted to be in the presence of the Messiah himself. And I want to make a quick tangent on this, and then I'm going to start to land the plane. But let me just make it so clear. Nobody can be with Jesus for you. I was listening to a message that just blew my mind. It's going pretty viral right now. I encourage you to listen to it. It's by Francis Chan called People, I'm Not Your Moses. And he was talking about how it just breaks his heart that people ask him to come to these conferences. And they were like, Francis, set our people on fire, Francis. Give our people fire, Francis. Give our people the ability to love God like you, Francis. And he's like, no, I'm tired of that. I'm not your Moses. I didn't go up the, fa- the mountain so that you could then just get this glory off. You're in- invited up the mountain. We are a kingdom of priests, and you are invited into the holy of holies. You don't need your pastors to be your Moses. You are invited into the presence of God. You go, like the wise man did in this passage. Don't try to send somebody else to be with Jesus for you and try to worship him via proxy. Go and be in the presence of the child yourself, not like the ones who sat back in Jerusalem and said that they didn't want to go. Number five. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. One of my favorite verses of the Bible, so I'm going to save it at the end. Uh, Number six, they gave. Treasure was willing to be given because their treasure wasn't treasure. You get that? I mean, they gave generously. They gave joyfully. And when they gave it, it says they laid it down because it's not theirs anymore. When they gave, they were just giving up the lesser treasure to the greatest treasure. I encourage you guys to pray to be able to see your treasure through those lenses. Pray, honestly. It's a dangerous prayer. Pray, Lord, help me to see the treasure that you've given me as your treasure. And when I'm giving up my treasure, help me to see me giving the lesser treasure to the greater treasure. I promise that God will wreck your life if you pray that prayer in faith. And I mean wreck your life in a good way. And they had all this luscious fruit because Jesus was their treasure. To contrast that with Herod's treasure. Like I said, he's the anti-Herod. Herod says, it says that he's troubled in verse 3. What was he troubled about? I'll take it back to the Tim Keller quote. You want to see what somebody really treasures in their heart? Block their access to it. And you'll see what they really treasure. Power was his treasure. So you want to see what he really treasured? Had this baby born that ironically blocks the access to his treasure. He gathers the leaders and the wise men in secret because he knows his heart is funky and junky. Um, He lies about wanting to go and worship. That's a dangerous place when we get to the place where we're like, oh yeah, I want to go and worship. 
that it's not reflective of your heart? And I'm going to tell you, the answer is not don't go and worship. The answer is ask your heart, why does my heart not want to go and worship? And seek the Lord on that. Where the wise men had fruit, Herod had fury in verse 17. That's a strong word. That proves the Keller quote, doesn't it? I mean, you don't get fury unless you're really perturbed that you don't have the access to the thing that you truly worship and treasure. He ultimately goes and does one of the most wicked things in all of modern history through the slaughter of the innocents later on in the passage to guard his slipping grip on treasure. Herod may have said in verse 8 that he wanted to go up and worship the Christ child, but he played his hand. He showed what his treasure truly was. So let me go back to one of the fruits that I glossed over because it's one of the fruits that our text spends the most time on as we close. Look at verse 211. Verse 10, rather. It says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Love that verse. Our joy or lack thereof is an indicator of what is in our hearts and what our hearts truly treasure. And look, I, I want to take the last five minutes I have and preach the bejesus out of this. Um, their joy was the fruit because Jesus is the treasure is what this comes down to. There was this popular movement that started a few years ago. I looked to see when the, the one book came out. It was 2008. And what it was was it, this movement to spiritualize joylessness, and it has crept like a cancer into the church. I saw the trouble with this one right away. I don't often see things this clearly, but there was this popular book, and it, and it sort of started like a domino for other terrible books to come out after it. And I won't know you the tell you the name of it because I don't desire it to get past its 15 minutes of fame that it had, but it should have been called, I Can Learn to Live a Joyless Christian Life and call it Keeping It Real and make it look like I'm more spiritual and now you can too. And around 2008 to 2012, this became really pervasive in Christian literature and a lot of my friends were buying into this total, think of the word you want to use, garbage. And since I had a prophetic-like edge when I looked at this stuff, I began reading into this stuff as it began to just trickle into popular Christianity. And it, I hit my limit one day when one of the writers was making fun of this uh, old lady. And this guy, he had all the joy of a Coldplay song. And he is just saying like, hey, you know that lady that's always saying, praise him. Praise him. And he's making fun of this lady that for 50 years all she would say is praise him. And his point was that Christians need to see that she goes through lows just like everybody else. And that our whole lives shouldn't be some kind of plastic praise him. And I'm going to tell you, no, we don't need more people who will whine about how lousy their lives are. Life's hard. We get it. Life is hard. But in the face of it, we still need that person that will say praise him. We need that Sandy Lockwood sitting in the front of the church that's going to be saying, praise him, even when you know that things are difficult. We need that. The church needs those people. Man, when I talk about passing on to young people what we truly treasure, this is what I'm talking about. Are we willing to praise him in joyful adoration even when things are tough? I get it. Much of this joyless, brooding Christianity is a clap back to the shiny, happy, clappy, 
prom song to Jesus Christianity of the 1990s. And people got tired of this fake, mega-churchy churchianity. But when somebody treasures Jesus above all else, joy and sadness are not supposed to be exclusive. They're supposed to be two essential aspects of being created in the Imago Dei. I don't get why we overemphasize one by underemphasizing the other. If you really want to get this, seriously, if you heard this sermon today and you're like, I need to learn this, go rent the kids' movie Inside Out. It will teach you better than anything I've ever read. And I've read C.S. Lewis, St. John of the Cross, Bernard of Clairvaux, and many other philosophers, and I've never seen any of them just nail the point of joy and sadness intermingling like inside out did. And listen to these words of Bernard of Clairvaux. He says, Oh, Jesus, joy of loving hearts, thou fount of life, the light of men, from fullest bliss the earth imparts. We turn unfulfilled to thee again. We turn unfulfilled to thee again. Our restless spirits yearn for thee wherever our, cheer, our changeful lot is cast. Glad that thy gracious smile we see. Blessed that our faith can hold thee fast. Blessed that our faith can hold thee fast. Those are beautiful. But I'm telling you, Inside Out said it better. So go and watch that movie. But when they beheld the child, they rejoiced with great joy. I want to dispel the notion that's becoming quite popular, that the more mature we get, we graduate to joylessness. I know people don't say it, but they sure do convince themselves of it very often. And I want to say it's a lie, and the emperor has no clothes on, and it's time that we start calling this out because it's killing the church. I get it that we have problems that test your joy. But you know what you don't have? Giving birth in a cow trough, fleeing from your homeland, from your life with your newborn child, fleeing to a land that is famous for holding your people hostage for 400 years and only returning to your homeland so you can begin your ministry of suffering until you die for the sins of mankind kind of problems. We don't graduate from joy as we mature. That's as blasphemous as saying we, we graduate from marital intimacy to porn. I, I want to be that blunt with you. That is as blasphemous as saying that we graduate from purity of speech into sanctified gossip. If Jesus is the treasure of your hearts, joy will be the prevailing treasure of your heart. Fruit is a treasure detector. If popularity, it works with anything else. If popularity, if power, if control are the treasures of your hearts, then you're going to see somebody's fruit exposing the true treasure of the heart as they begin to lose their grip on power. So let me ask you a couple of questions as we close. What do we actually treasure? Imagine yourself as one of the kids that was standing up here. And you're being asked, what do you truly treasure? And I'm not assuming that there's a negative answer in there. Brothers and sisters, I, I hope and believe that the answer is Jesus. Sometimes we just need to re-scoot him over to the throne because we try to get on there and make room with Jesus. And we're like, no, Jesus, that's your thing. Let me get off of that. I believe that that's most of us. I believe most of us truly do treasure Jesus. But if not, I want to ask you, as you've been taking down, you treasure Jesus. What lengths are you willing to go to in order to obtain the thing that you treasure? It's going to say a lot about what you treasure. Does the fruit demonstrate that the thing that we call our treasure and our actual treasure being one and the same? That's a big one, brothers and sisters. I ask you to consider that. Does the fruit in your life demonstrate that the thing that you call your treasure and what you actually treasure show that they're one and the same? And does our treasure look radically different to a watching world? Is our treasure when they look, ah, this has to be a God thing because there's no other explanation that makes sense to this. Let's pray. 
God, I thank you that you are our treasurer, and we look forward to now treasuring you through the Lord's Supper, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to invite